Leviticus chapter 8, verses 1 through 15. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the the breastpiece on him. And in the breastpiece, he put the Urim and the Thummim. And he set the turban on his head. And on the turban, in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Then he brought the bull of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bull of the sin offering, and he killed it. And Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Tricia. Friends, let's pray as we ready to turn to the book of Hebrews. Lord God, as we come to you, the one who we've proclaimed to be holy, 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 we come as people who struggle with sin, struggle with doubt, We suffer, struggle with all these things in our lives that have caused us to be separated from you in our sin, and and yet you have come and you have united us to yourself. We didn't do anything that, that could have earned a, a, a relationship with you once again, but, but you have done it all by your grace. So Lord, we come as people who, who see the, the rituals and the sacrifices in the Old Testament and all these commandments that you gave to your people to, to seek to procure a holiness while the holy God dwelled in their midst. And we, and we see all these things and, and we can't help but See the ways that that none of these things could have ever 
paid the price. None of these things could have ever atoned for our sin, for our guilt. But Jesus, you have atoned for all of our sin. You have paid the full price. So Lord, we pray as we come to your word in Hebrews this morning, as we continue to look at who you are, Jesus Christ. We pray that you would help us to see who you are, to to see you as our great high priest. An image that we may not immediately connect with very well in our own culture and day, but, but help us to see how significant it is that you have become our high priest, how much we need you, and how glorious it is to follow you, to orient our lives around you. Lord Jesus, we pray all these things in your mighty name, praying that you would help us come to your word and to stand under it, be convicted, and to be encouraged. Amen. Friends, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, and, and we took a, a, a short break during Advent to, to spend a few weeks in the book of Haggai, and I'm picking up this week where we left off. But if you remember, the first four chapters of Hebrews were, were about Jesus Christ being the one who is better than even the greatest alternatives. The, the, the angels are, are nothing compared to him, it says in Hebrews chapter 1. It says in, chapters, in, in, in chapter 3 that he's greater than Moses, better than Moses. And in chapter 4, we saw how the author exhorts us, uh, commands us, calls us to, to not look for life in other things or for rest in other things, but to find life in the only one who, who gives true rest. For people who are so tired and exhausted by the busyness of life or by our own failures or our own difficulty with following the Lord or, or, or any number of other things that, that cause exhaustion in our lives. And the author says, there's true rest, true life in one place. And that's in this very person who has been presented as the one who is better, better than, than any other thing you might go to. The author in chapter 5 this week begins a a section where where he will make an extended argument that Jesus is not only better than angels, not only better than the greatest Old Testament figures, not only better than the law, but he's better than any other figure that could bring us back into relationship with God. God, and and in the Old Testament, that figure was the high priest, the high priest, the only one who could restore, who could bring about and mediate a relationship with God, who could enter into the, the holy presence of God, the place where God dwells, the only one who was allowed. The author will argue that that Jesus Christ is the great high priest. So let's take a few moments. We're going to read this, these 10 verses together at the beginning of chapter 1, and then we'll spend some time 
considering what the author says. This is God's word, very word of God. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward because he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There are so many truths in this passage, things in this passage we could focus in on, but we're going to, we're going to Try and focus in this morning on the way that Jesus Christ fulfills what the author sets forth as qualifications for a high priest, as qualifications for one who is going to be able to restore or, or make a way back to a relationship with God. You may remember the, the famous opening lines of the old movie, The Patriot. Anyone remember the, the opening lines as the, as the movie opens up, there's, uh, there's footage around the house of this main character is played by Mel Gibson, his name is Benjamin Martin, and it's the voice of Benjamin Martin saying this, he says, I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me, and the cost is more than I can bear. I've long feared that my sins would return to visit me. And the cost is more than I can bear. What Mel Gibson's character utters in, in those opening lines of the movie, I think, connect and, and, and became iconic because they connect to something deep in each of us. We understand the things that we've done. We understand the mistakes that we've made, and we understand that if our deeds were exposed, if the the deepest thoughts that we had, the the most vulnerable places were exposed, the cost of that is perhaps more than we could bear. And there's fear around that. How, How could I make up for things I've already done? Mistakes I've already made, sins I've already committed, things I am so deeply ashamed of. How could I ever change or make up for those things? The answer to this problem 
this universal human problem in the Old Testament, is in part this figure of the high priest. The high priest is the one who, though the people are unholy, though the people have done things which, which cause them not to be able to enter the presence of God, prevent them from being with the holiness of God, the high priest is the one who is appointed, who's called, who's able to go in. But as Trisha just read, the high priest has to first atone for his own sins. He first has to go through these rituals. He has to wear certain clothes. He has to, to, to follow all of these rules that God gives in order for even him to be able to go in and make a way for the people as a representative. What the author of Hebrews gives us in our passage this morning, is three qualifications, though. Three particular qualifications that are essential for a high priest. And the first qualification, the first thing that must be true of a high priest is that he must complete a specific task. You see this in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Some price has to be paid. We've done stuff in our past. We've we've messed up. We've sinned. We're ashamed of what we've done. And some price has to be paid. Something has to be given. So the high priest must be the one to, to... Give the gifts and sacrifices to pay that price through the law that God has given. But there's a second qualification, and and it's not about a task. It's more about a disposition. Look at verse 2. He, the high priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Now, this is a really interesting uh, uh, qualification for a high priest. If you think about it, someone who, who is going to be a high priest, you would think they, they must be one of the strongest of the people, one of, one of the, uh, the people who's the greatest stand-up citizen closest to perfection. But it says here, no, the, the high priest actually had to be somebody who was beset with weakness. The high priest had to be weak in order to perform his role well. Let's look at this just a little more closely. He, it says he can deal gently. He can deal gently. It, it, you, we know this if we've been parents or seen parents. It's easier to be harsh or to be indulgent. It's easier either just to jump to harsh discipline, stop that behavior, or to just let the behavior go. Both of those options are easier than getting down on my knees with my children and patiently walking with them through this difficult thing, this slapping me in the face, this whatever it is. You can tell I have a two-year-old. easier to be or to act in exasperated anger. It's easier to, 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 to act in, in mushy indulgence or sentimentality, or it's easier just to be indifferent. But, but what it says here is that 
The high priest is someone who can deal gently. He can deal gently. He can get down alongside the people. One of the less pleasant parts of being a pastor is the awkward response I get when someone asks me what I do. And I answer them, I'm a pastor. That's inevitably followed by an immediate change of behavior. Or, uh, <laughs> or sometimes self-justification. I actually had somebody recently uh, who I told them I was a pastor. They didn't know how to respond, so they, we, the conversation kind of ended quickly, I guess. And then she found me a few minutes later and to let me know that she does go to church sometimes. <laughs> Why is it that people do this? They think that, that by the virtue of, of the role of a, a pastor, me being a pastor, that, that all of a sudden they've got to sort of justify themselves in some way. They think that there's some sort of like a, a, a moral difference or, or some sort of a, oh, I got I to gotta, I gotta act differently. I got to clean my act up around you. We don't need somebody like that. We don't need someone who, when we're around them, we need to clean up our act around them. That's, that's not helpful. What do we need? We need someone who can deal gently and walk with us. And why is it that the author of Hebrews says that, that the high priest can deal gently? Why is he able to do this? It's because he's beset with weakness. It's because he's beset with weakness. Perhaps the best qualification for a pastor is someone who knows how weak they are. This word beset, used other places in, in the scriptures, talk about being surrounded, or, or even to talk about being clothed, to have clothes put on. It, 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 it's a word that's not just saying... He knows he's weak, but it's saying he's actually covered in weakness. Like clothes covered the body, he's covered in weakness. And interestingly, in Exodus chapter 28, and then later on in Exodus, we get two full chapters about how important the high priest's clothes are. How important the, the clothes are. Just a few verses from Exodus 28. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests. Aaron and his sons, and you shall make holy garments, holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to everyone who's skillful, whom I've filled with a spirit of skill, that they may be the ones to make Aaron's garments and to consecrate him for my priesthood. And then he goes out to list all of the different garments that must be made. But do you see here, it's not the, it's not the holy clothes that the that the author of Hebrews brings out as the qualification for the high priest. Instead, he says he must be clothed with weakness. Someone who can, who can help us must be clothed with weakness. And then the author says he has to make sacrifices for his own sins before he can make sacrifice for the sins of the people. That truth we just saw when Trisha read from Leviticus 8. 
So, so a high priest has to be someone who fulfills a task, who, who makes a payment for sins. He has to be somebody who can deal gently because of the weakness that he's clothed with. But, but thirdly, a high priest, and this is the, the last qualification that the author gives us, it says he must be called by God. He, he has to be someone who's appointed by God. It says no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. You cannot take on the role of high priest because you decide to do it in the Old Testament. It's only someone who's appointed by God. You can't just decide, I'm going to make a way back to God. I messed up and now I've decided I'm going to make a way back. No, you need a representative who is appointed by God. And here's the point of the author of Hebrews. The reason that the author of Hebrews goes through all of these little details from the books of Exodus and Leviticus in the qualifications for high priests is because here's what he wants to show you. He wants to show you how glorious Jesus is. He wants to show you how the person of Jesus fulfills all of these things perfectly. But he does this in in reverse order. Notice how he does this in in verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made of high priest, but was appointed. He starts with this third qualification that, that a high priest has to be somebody who's called, who's appointed. He can't take the honor on himself. But notice this. Notice the language that he uses. He says, Christ did not exalt himself. This is the only time that the author of Hebrews uses this word, to to exalt or to glorify. It's from the same Greek word that we get the word glory from. But the author does use the word glory several times in the book of Hebrews, and, and almost every time it's to talk about Jesus. In Hebrews 1, he's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. In chapter 2, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor. Again in chapter 2, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor, and he's bringing many sons to glory. And then in chapter 3, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. The author of Hebrews has been clear, the only one who's, who's worthy of the kind of glory that's ascribed to, to God throughout the Bible is this person, Jesus Christ. What does he say here? Christ did not glorify himself. The only one who deserved it, the only one who could have rightly done it, the only one who could have actually said, I, I'm going to glorify myself because I'm due this glory in the first place, chose not to exalt, not to glorify himself. Rather, the author says, he was appointed. And he quotes from these, these two psalms. Psalm 2, where, where, where the Scripture says, you are my son. The author says, this is about Jesus. And then Psalm 110, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I'm, I'm going to come back to this figure, Melchizedek, uh, because the author of Hebrews is going to talk about him a lot more in a couple of chapters here. So, no questions about that yet. We'll come back to who that is, but for, for now, it, it, it's, it's this figure that shows up way back in Genesis 14, who the author of Hebrews looks at and says, there's something about him that, that represents or points forward to Jesus Christ in a particular way. But the point here is that Jesus didn't glorify himself even though he could have. 
we have a sickness problem, something that we struggle with, have struggled with, and will struggle with throughout our lives, and it's this tendency to glorify ourselves. It's this tendency to want to do things that bring honor or attention, status to us. This is what we're taught to do. This is, this is, this is what our culture values. This is, this is our human nature, an inner desire from the time that we are young. Our motivations are around what is going to benefit me. What is going to get me renowned? What is going to help me? What the author of Hebrews shows us here is, is the example of Christ who actually deserved that glory and yet did not exalt himself. What's your motivation in the Christian life? What, what drives you? The author shows us here there's no greater motivation than to give glory to the one who actually deserves it but didn't take it. There's no greater glory than to see the one who was, who was appointed by the Father. To see Jesus Christ, the one who, who deserves all glory in the universe and, and, and yet laid himself down. No greater motivation in the Christian life than that. Why do, we, why do we make these sacrifices? Why do we say no to these temptations? Why do we, why do we try to live a, a life that's difficult and countercultural? Well, it, there's no greater motivation than to bring glory to Jesus. But not only this, Jesus doesn't only fulfill that first qualification, but he fulfills the second qualification as well. He's, he's able to deal gently. He's got the disposition of a high priest. Look at verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. What is the author talking about here? When did Jesus offer up loud cries with tears? There are a few different times where, where we see Jesus' emotion in the, in the Gospels, but what the author seems to be talking about here, I, I think because he says, from him who was able to save him from death, he's talking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember, you remember that scene in the Gospels? You remember the Gospel writers uh, picture Jesus or, or tell us about Jesus in, in the Garden on the night when he knew he was about to be betrayed by his close friend, about to be arrested, beaten, mocked, Killed. He knows all this is coming. And in the garden, do you remember he prays? He says, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And, and then Luke tells us that an angel came to him to, to strengthen him. And, and then, being in agony, he prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He was in such turmoil in his soul, calling out to God, loud cries and tears, and even sweating blood. 
The author of Hebrews is, is, is likely pointing us back to this scene of Jesus in agony. He called out with loud cries and tears. And, and this, is, this, is, this is psalm language. This is what we see in the psalms over and over. Psalm 116 says, The snares of, of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I, I suffered distress and anguish. And then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. It's how the Psalms taught God's people to pray from the beginning. But Jesus here in the garden prays, and using this psalm language, crying out. Have you cried out to God about things? Have you felt the depths of despair? Have you felt the, 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 the grief that won't go away, the, the difficulty of the temptation that you continue to go back to? The relationship that, that broke and you can't fix it. You cry out to God. Jesus has been there. Jesus knows what it's like to cry out. Ask that if there's any way for God to change the circumstances that he would do it. Not only this, but Jesus has experienced the answer, no. The author of Hebrews tells us that he was heard, but we know that though he was heard, the Father still pressed the cup of judgment into his hand. He still went to the cross. He still experienced death. And as Jesus went to the cross, you may remember, he was stripped of his clothes. He was hung up. He was humiliated, mocked, beaten. He was a high priest who, though stripped of his clothes, was clothed in weakness. Completely clothed in weakness. That is why he is able to deal gently with you and with me. Because he's bent down where you are and lower. The question is not, can he relate to me? The question is, can I relate to him? In this, friends, I think Jesus teaches us how to pray. See, see how he prays, he cries out, he's in anguish, and, and yet at the same time, he, he relinquishes, he lets go. He says, not my will, but yours. God calls you to cry out to him. God calls you in the midst of difficult circumstances to pray like that, to cry out. Just like Jesus did, to cry out about the circumstances, and, and yet, at the same time, to, to relinquish, say, not my will, but yours. And, and, and see, there's another aspect to what the author says here about, about his prayer having been heard by God. Because while the Father didn't answer Jesus' prayer by taking the cup of judgment from him, while, while, the, while the Father didn't answer Jesus' prayer by allowing him not to go through the experiences that were necessary in order to save his people, the, the, the Father still answers this prayer, the one who is able to save him from death. It looked like an answer that was a flat no because he went to the cross and he died. But what happened? In the resurrection 
of Christ from the dead, what we see is that the Father answered the prayer in a more glorious way. They didn't answer the prayer by, by giving immediate consent to what was asked for. But what he said is, is through death and the salvation of your people and, and through raising you from death, that prayer will be answered in a much more glorious way. And it's, friends, the, the same thing in our lives. We, we think that we know the best outcome. We think as we pray to the Lord that, 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 that we know what would be best. And it's okay to cry out and ask for that. And yet at the same time, what we learn as, as we walk in the Christian life is that, is that the Father has a more glorious outcome. That his ultimate will for you and for me is that we're united to the one who's been resurrected. We have new life in Jesus Christ and that even when the circumstances don't change, that there is one thing that's true. We have a high priest who's clothed in weakness and he deals gently with you and me. One commentator says, I think, says it beautifully. He says, we so often pray for the experience of a Garden of Eden where we can walk with God and have all the blessings God gives, but we're unwilling to go through the Garden of Gethsemane. We're not willing to experience the agony of crying out as our Savior did. We want the blessing of an answer prayer the way we want it. God says, my will is better. Finally, Jesus doesn't just fulfill these first two qualifications. He doesn't just have, have the right calling or the right disposition, but, but he also is the one who offers gifts and sacrifices, the one who does something on behalf of our sin. The author say next, he says, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Think about that for just a second. Jesus, the Lord of the universe, learned obedience. In order to procure our salvation, in order to become the high priest who had these qualifications so that he could save us, he had to enter in. He had to experience what we experience. And there are, there are times when I interact with people and they say, you, I can't, or I have to say, I can't understand what you're going through right now. Jesus understands what you're going through. He has learned obedience through suffering. And yet, in verse 9, the author says, being made perfect. And this is, this is maybe the most difficult uh, part of this, this passage. And what I want you to see here, the, sort of the question that immediately comes up is, how can someone who's perfect be made perfect? Right? You can't make something perfect, perfect. The author's already been clear that Jesus is without sin. He's the glorious one. But what the author means here is not that Jesus has been made morally perfect, that he was wrong or sinful before, but that he has been made complete in his vocation, in his calling as our high priest. He's been, completely made, been made completely able to be our representative. He's the one who, who is, is perfect in his function as our savior. And, and in, 
We've seen all these ways that Jesus has empathized with us, that he can relate to us. But, but I want you to think about, if you go to the, the doctor and say you, you've been diagnosed with a, with a disease like cancer, and the, and the doctor says to you, well, well, I've also had cancer, I've been through this, that's going to add some comfort, right? But then, but then the doctor says, all right, there's nothing we can do. I can't fix you. It's not the outcome that I'm wanting. I, I, I've been comforted some by, by the fact that he can empathize with me. I've been comforted some by the fact that, that, that he knows what I'm going through, sure. But if there's nothing that he can do to fix me, then, 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 then the, the comfort is not full. I have no hope. Similarly, we need a, we need a Savior, not just a Savior who can empathize with us, who knows what we're going through, but we need a Savior who's able to bring us out, who's able to heal us. Not just somebody who's clothed in weakness, but, but somebody who's powerful enough to lift us up, to bring us out, to pay for the sins that we've committed. And, and this is why the passage here is so glorious, is that somebody has to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Somebody has to pay the price. And what the author tells us is that there's one person who's sufficient to pay the price. And that is your Savior, Jesus Christ. That, 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 not, that he's not only the one who can relate to you and empathize with you, not only the one that you can go to in all circumstances knowing that he knows what it's like, but he's also the one who can bring you out. The one who can fully heal you. Son of God himself has fulfilled the qualifications of a high priest. He's the one who's called. He's the one who who went through every experience that we go through, and he has become the source of, the author says, eternal salvation. The author started by saying every high priest, every high priest, and and you see throughout the Old Testament, high priest after high priest after high priest after high priest after high priest, because the problem is they died. Every single one of those high priests, even when they were good ones, they died, and there were a lot of bad ones. No one was able to pay that eternal price. Friends, your Savior, Jesus Christ, has paid the eternal price. We're about to celebrate this sacrament, this picture, this sign of what Jesus Christ has done in pulling us out from the grave, in bringing us out by his might, the same Savior who himself came and was baptized. And as we see this picture, what I want to encourage you to do is to reflect on your own baptism. If you've been baptized, if you've trusted in in your Savior, Jesus Christ, think about how he has raised you to life. Think about how he has given you a better motivation, a motivation that, that brings him glory. Think about how he knows everything that you go through. And think about how he is your source of eternal salvation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, even as we come to these 
Old Testament images and figures that, that are sometimes difficult for us to relate to. Lord, when we see what you've communicated to us in your word, we see how glorious you are. And Lord, we pray that you would give us, give us eyes to see it. It, it. Lord, I pray if, if we're here this morning and, and we, know, we feel that sense of, I have things I'm ashamed of. I have a need to, to justify myself. I, I, haven't, I have things that I hope don't come back up again. I pray that you would help us to trust in Jesus Christ this morning. I pray that you would help us to, to, to come to the one who can give eternal salvation. And rest. I pray that we would have faith. Faith in the only one who can save. And, and, and for those of us who have known you and, become, and been baptized, help us to, to be built up in you. Help us to, to, to cling to you. Help us to go to you and to cry out when things are hard and difficult. And help us, help us, Lord, to know how much you know us, how deeply. You care for us. Teach us to pray like that. Teach us to trust. Teach us to follow you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.